This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We have an awful lot to do on the show today. Jordan Tutu, former NHLer, is on the show. We're going to talk about sounds from space. Maybe we won't even need to worry about this election. Maybe these sounds are kind of a, hey, hey, hello, we're coming. You never know. We can't say they aren't. But, yeah, it's probably not aliens. That's the best way to resolve a movie that's going in the wrong direction. Because aliens. Or a book. Stephen King, famous for that. I love two-thirds of every Stephen King book. And then the last third, when he's tying together the loose, a- the loose ends, and it becomes because aliens. I'm, I'm not as big a fan of that. One thing that you are not necessarily going to see at fairs, maybe to the same extent you've seen in previous years, is horses. What do you mean? You know how county fairs will have horses. Sometimes kids can get up and ride the horses. There is a concern, especially in this area, over the the potential health of horses should they be allowed to go to different fairs? And joining us right now from the Ontario Veterinary College and the University of Guelph is Professor Scott Weiss to talk about something called strangles. Professor Weiss, how's Tuesday going for you? Oh, good, thank you. We've got a lot of country fairs that are starting up, Western Fair getting underway, and one of the things that you tend to see at a lot of them is horses. There is a major concern for horses this fall in 2019. Can you spell out what that is for us? Well, there's a concern this year, and whether it's a big concern or whether it's getting more attention is the question, but the concern this year is the disease called strangle. It's a bacterial disease of horses that can spread pretty quickly amongst horses. So you mentioned strangles. That's that's a weird name. Does that refer to any part of the disease? Well, it's an old name. Like a lot of the horse diseases, we, we base on names from a couple hundred years ago and really how it originated. It's an infection that gets into their nose and some of the lymph glands around their head most commonly. And you can get abscesses in these glands that can get really big and in a really severe case, it can essentially strangle the horse because it puts pressure on their windpipe. It's, it's a rare outcome, but it's a nasty outcome. Okay, so can this be a thing that becomes fatal for horses, or does it just leave them you know, sick for a little while? How does that work? Well, most of the time, horses will get over it, whether it's with treatment or just with time. It's a pretty small percentage of horses that get serious consequences, but yes, it can kill some horses. We're talking with Professor Scott Weiss, an infectious diseases specialist with the Ontario Veterinary College's Department of Pathobiology. And we're talking about something called strangles, which you may hear if you're at a fair and you look around and you think, well, yeah, I, I remember there, there were horses here that the kids could ride or there was a, a petting zoo that featured horses. Where are the horses? And they may or may not be there. So how is it spread Oh, it's spread through respiratory secretion. So it lives in the horse's throat and nose, and horses spread it by having direct contact or by sharing buckets or probably commonly by people's hands. They touch a horse's face and they touch another horse's face because we tend to pet horses in the face and the nose a lot. So it spreads fairly easily that way. And is there a way to easily treat it, or is this more of let's keep all the horses away from potentially infected horses and and then hope it just kind of disappears? 
Well, the problem is the bacterium's out there, and we're never going to get rid of strangles in Ontario. It's always circulating around. It causes sporadic disease and the odd outbreak. So there's no way to 100% prevent the risk of strangles, whether it's this, this year or any year. There always has been and there always will be some risk. Now, there are things we can do to reduce that risk, though. And the question is, do we need to cancel an event or can we just use some common sense to reduce the risk of strangles and other things. Strangles isn't the only thing that horses can get at a fair. Okay, what else can they run into? Well, there there are a variety of bacteria and viruses, just like you You can pick up a cold or a flu or anything by walking around there. And horses can get influenza or various other respiratory viruses. Um, They can get some gastrointestinal diseases. They're fairly uncommon, but anytime you mix individuals, whether it's a horse or a person, you risk spreading things. And fairs are a great place to do that because you bring a lot of horses from a lot of different areas, and sometimes you put them in pretty close contact without a lot of infection control. Professor Scott Weiss joining us, infectious disease specialist with the Ontario Veterinary College's Department of Pathobiology. As we talk about strangles, which has kind of reared its ugly head in this fall season so far. Is there a reason why it would come about? Everybody seems to point back to the wet spring. Oh, that wet spring. That's why we, we had the allergy sufferers really suffering this summer. That's why we had so many mosquitoes early on. Is it anything like that? Yeah, wet spring is kind of hard to, to blame. It's it's a bacterium that's out there. You know, we see cases all the time, and we don't really know whether there's a lot more strangles activity this year or there's a lot more discussion of strangles activity. Um, it's not a disease that's reportable. There's no, no formal tracking. We rely on just kind of general reports to figure out what's going on. So we certainly do see times when there's more strangles than others. It might be the case right now, or it might just be getting a lot more attention, but regardless, there's always going to be some risk of it. Is strangles something that can spread to any other animals, or is this just a disease for horses? Uh, Fortunately, this is just a disease of horses. We don't have to worry about it spreading to people or other animals. All right. Well, Professor Weiss, we really thank you for educating us on what strangles is and uh, why we may not see as many horses around fairs this fall. Great. Thank you. Professor Scott Weiss from the Ontario Veterinary College and the University of Guelph. So not a serious thing, but if you're hoping to take the kids horseback riding at a fair, and that's what you do each and every year, uh, may not be as many horses or maybe not any horses. We'll see. Let's hope that we still have that. But if there aren't, now you know why. Fast radio burst signals from space. We now have technology powerful enough to pick these things up. We have for a while, but it seems we're finding more and more. And we had an announcement last year from SETI. Did you ever take part in the SETI project? Remember the SETI project? You'd have a buddy who would say, hey, you know, you you part of the SETI project? And you go, I have no idea what that is. And it was the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. That's SETI. And you would basically download something onto your computer and it would act almost as your screensaver back when we paid a lot of attention to screensavers. Remember those days? And it would act as your screensaver, but it would essentially use your computer for its power when you weren't using it in order to search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And so with these FRBs, you had SETI saying the following. There were 30 that were found in 2018. 
Said he said, quote, certainly the explanation that has most intrigued the public is that fast radio bursts are signals from advanced intelligence. Well, let's get some intelligence and let's try and figure out what this might be and why it is becoming such a fascination. Max King joins us from the U of T. Max, when you look up into the skies uh, at the moment, some things seem to be happening. Yes, there's been quite a buzz lately, uh, back in August especially, about some really sort of bizarre signals from space. Now, these kind of started or were picked up for the first time before this summer, right? Yes, so the first of these uh, fast radio bursts was discovered about a decade ago. Okay. And they're very, they're very unpredictable, and they're like their name suggests, they're very fast. They're faster than it would take you to blink. It's just a burp of signal from somewhere in space, and then it's gone. Hmm. Now, when you use the word signal, it, it kind of creates uh, maybe a, a thought that this isn't necessarily just a space noise. This might not be an exploding star or a collision of something, but... Uh, hey, you're the, the expert when it comes to space. Could it be something like that? Because immediately people start saying aliens, and I, I don't know if anybody's gone quite there yet. Well, yeah, so you, you're right on with space is a noisy place. So there's uh, there's signal coming from visible light everywhere, starshine, and then there's also radio signals coming off of lots of stars, like our own sun, and these are just constant noise sources out there. And what makes these signals interesting is that they're just very short bursts, and that's it. And so you're right. There is a lot. There is some speculation. Some people think that, well, this is, you know, if this was aliens talking to each other or something, that this could be what it looked like. Uh, There's nowhere near enough evidence to say that's the case. But it is certainly an interesting thing. I like that we can't rule that out, though. We're talking with Max King from the U of T, and we're talking about radio bursts that are being picked up. How are they being picked up here? So signals can travel very, very far in space, uh, especially if they're very strong. And so this is another big problem with FRBs, with fast radio bursts, is it's like hearing a noise in your house. It's you hear it once and you turn and you're not hearing it again and it's hard to tell where it's come from. So one question is, are they close and not so loud or are they really far away and extremely loud? And, and is there any way to, to tell down. that? Um, so with Chime, the uh, Canadian telescope that picked up some of these, so Chime is sort of, uniquely situated such that it's going to have the best chance at solving this mystery. So that telescope is set up in such a way that instead of listening to a portion of the sky really closely, it listens to most of, it'll listen to the whole sky throughout the day. And that gives it a really good chance of picking up these bursts as they sort of just show up popcorn style around the sky. 
Okay, so so they they could be coming from from different areas, or or do we even know that? Or do, because they keep picking them up, are they coming from kind of the? I know you mentioned the the house analogy, but at least from the same direction in the house. So a lot of them seem to be coming from outside of our galaxy. So our sun is one star of billions inside our galaxy, and then there's enormous reaches of empty space, and then there's these other islands of stars, other galaxies, and we think some of these bursts are coming from other galaxies, and they don't seem to be coming from the same one. So very vastly different regions of space. Okay. And they're, we're picking up more and more of them, and we, there was about, when the first were discovered took about a decade, and we probably found about 50, five zero in total. And now we're in a position where we're starting to pick up, and there are, you know, tens of these being discovered on a regular basis. And when you say regular basis, sometimes in the astronomy world, regular basis could be every two million <laughs> years. Uh, obviously, it's, it's a little more frequent. What's regular basis now? So, uh the Chine Telescope is making some upgrades to have more sophisticated monitoring specifically for these um, bursts. And once that's in progress and rolling, we could be discovering 10 in a day as opposed to 50 in a decade. And are they similar sounds all the time? So what's unique about them is they're very short, and they're all sort of at a stim. Chime can only pick up a certain frequency, so it's hearing the same ones or ones that are emitted at the same frequency, and they're sort of very short in length, which in the, in the astronomy world loosely correlates to the size of something. So large stars will, emer- will emit really long bursts of energy if they, if they are sending out signal, but these signals are so short they would correspond to something that's kilometers in length or hmm. kilometers in diameter as opposed to millions of kilometers. And that becomes very interesting. We're talking with Max King from the University of Toronto, and we're talking about, well, they're called fast radio bursts, which maybe paints too much of a, a picture for us because we think about radio production. We think about something that, you know, radio waves, that it, it has to be produced by, you know, some some alien families, TV movies, you know, home movies. Um, not necessarily, but that's interesting that you say it's being produced by something that's kilometers wide, perhaps. So there aren't any stars that are that small, are there? So there are very exotic stars that are that way, and they're very bizarre. They're, they're called neutron stars, and they're very small, and they're immensely dense. If you had a spoonful of one, it would weigh as much as a mountain does. So they're incredibly dense, and they're incredibly exotic. And some, pe- some astronomers theorize that these stars might be the source of these fast radio bursts, but they're very small and very difficult to detect, especially so far away. Okay. So other theories. What are you hearing about mm-hmm. other theories of what this could be? So some people think the neutron star theory. Some theorists assume it could be some people more down the, the alien bend think maybe it's sort of uh, engines of some other civilization as they blast from one place to another. Um, 
there are as many theories about these as we've had observations. And I don't don't have a personal one that I think the the neutron star theory is my personal favorite, but some people think maybe there's bizarre asteroids or something that have bizarre properties that we don't understand yet and might be producing these signals. Is this one of those things, Max, that we may never really be able to determine what these things are, no matter how many we collect? Well, so... I don't think so. I think uh, as we go, I think it's certainly a mystery now. And there's been a number of bizarre things like this that have shown up in astronomy that baffle us for maybe a decade or so. But I think we'll get to the bottom of this. And the Chime Telescope in Canada is the most unique tool in the world for actually solving this problem. So when we do find the solution... It's going to be Canadian scientists and Canadian technology that helps us get it. Man, that part is really amazing. All right, well, we'll wait to see what happens once they get the telescope up and running, and hopefully they can capture even more, and maybe we can make some inferences after that. Max, before we let you go, there is another country that has really kind of pushed forward in the space race and attempted something not too long ago. Tell us about India. Yes, so India's space program, the Indian Space Research Organization, ISRO, their NASA, has been really expanding its space program over the past several years. And they had a, uh, I'm going to say this name wrong, but Chandrayaan-2 was an orbiter. It went to the moon recently, and it had a lander that launched off it this week. It was going to go down to the lunar surface. Now, unfortunately, that lander didn't make it to the surface, and it seems to have landed on it, or it made it to the surface, but it seems to have landed on its side. That's uh, unofficial statements right now out of, uh, from the Indian Space Organization. So hopefully we find out in the next week or so what actually went wrong. Max, thank you for watching the stars for us and helping them to understand what's going on up there. We really appreciate the time. Well, thank you very much, Mike. Have a great day. You too. Max King from the University of Toronto. You know, it's interesting to hear that India attempted to land something on the moon. We do have China that's very involved. We have Russia that's very involved in the space program. We, of course, have the United States, and we kind of partner up at times with the United States. You've got four nations right there, and there are others as well, who are interested in doing things in outer space. You know what we haven't come to terms with yet? And I'm not sure how long it would take for this to come into play, but the more players you have dealing with outer space, the better the chances are of it. If there is a crime in outer space, who investigates? How is that handled? If there is a crime that is definitely a crime... Oh, you're not, you think you're going to land that on the moon? Not before us. And pachoo, pachoo, they shoot it down. I, I don't know. That hasn't happened in this case. But at some point, we'll be there. Who handles that? Do we have to look at Donald Trump's Space Force? Did he ever get that set up? I don't, after hearing at first that he was going to set up a Space Force, I don't remember hearing any more about Space Force. Is that going to be part of his platform? For 2020, is he going to run on that? Space Force? 
I don't know what he's going to run on. That's a whole other topic. But who would handle it? Now, somebody actually dragged out a 1967 Outer Space Treaty, which states a state party to the treaty on whose registry an object launched into outer space is carried shall retain jurisdiction and control over such object and over any personnel thereof while in outer space or on a celestial body. So at least something has been thought of before, and I do believe that came from the United States. They were kind of anticipating landing on the moon at the time, so that's why they had put that together. But that means that you know a, a country would then investigate what happened to them. When does it become like international waters? When does that happen? How far into space can you go? Well, between here and the moon, uh, we're going to control that. But, uh, yeah, on the way to Mars, yeah, we don't really want that. It's, it's too long a highway. We don't have enough staff. Forget that. But an interesting question. Who exactly controls the investigation of a crime in outer space? And when will that first crime be committed. So far on the International Space Station, everybody has been very cooperative as far as we know. Not that they'd tell us. You know what happened on the International Space Station? <laughs> you should have seen there was this assault and we probably wouldn't know. That would be covered up. Unless somebody had video that they then downloaded to Earth. That takes a while. We wouldn't we wouldn't know anything. You'd have to get that into the hands of TMZ or something for it to become an issue. But so far, so good. But there will come a day. Won't there? It isn't easy to leave home at the age of thirteen. That's what our next guest did. In the end, it worked out for him. So Jordan Tutu is someone who was a fan favorite wherever he played as a hockey player. He is now retired, but he has turned his attention to helping out in a number of different ways because of the experiences he has been through. His brother left him a note and died by suicide right before Jordan was drafted, before he started in the NHL. That had an impact on Jordan as did many other things in his life. Since then, Jordan has started a fund, he has written a book, and he is coming to London, and he will be speaking at the Recovery Breakfast in London, the 13th annual, at the Doubletree by Hilton, one week from this Friday at 7 in the morning. And I believe there are still a couple of tickets available, and it is a very powerful event. You hear from people from our own community, and... You hear from people like Jordan Tutu. We're lucky enough to be able to speak with Jordan right now. Jordan, you've done such a great job taking your story public and allowing people to see into your life. How difficult was it to share your story publicly and to do that, to let the world in on your life? Well, you know, uh, when you're going through, you know, certain situations, you Fear the unknown, and and for me it was uh, being able to dig deep down to to help me heal as a person and to you know share my story and hopefully you know help one person along the way. Ultimately, you know, in order to help other people, you got to make sure you're healthy first, and 
you know, it, it took a lot of years to uh, to get to that point. Uh, you know, it was just about trusting the process and, and believing in myself. It's interesting for us to hear you use the word fear, that you had that fear of the unknown, because your character was always one and just seemed to be one of fearlessness. You weren't afraid of anything. Yeah, you know, ultimately, you know, my my persona being that tough guy uh you know people every person fights a fight no one knows about and you know i basically lived two different lives um you know it was uh hockey was my outlet and hockey was my and still is my passion um you know a lot of a lot of kids don't realize the impact that individuals have on on other people and and for me coming from a indigenous background at an early age you know I didn't quite understand or realize the impact that I had during during my hockey career uh, up until I I sobered up and and really became comfortable in my own skin and content and I guess you you bring that up in such a great way because how can anybody expect you to realize that? You look at how young you are when you're first going through, whether it's major, junior, where in Brandon, you were the guy everybody wanted to come and see. In the National Hockey League, you're on the biggest stage the sport has, and yet you're still a really young man. Yeah, you know, the I, I didn't realize, um, you know, at playing in the juniors, uh what an what an honor and privilege it is to uh to be playing at that level uh you know i think i took a lot for granted and um you know just kind of rolled with the wave um you know i think a lot of people who are fighting demons deep down inside are so focused on the the public's perception and and for me it definitely impacted, you know, the kind of person I was. I used the the public attention and and all that as an advantage. Uh, but deep down inside, you know, I was I was lonely. Uh, you know the 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 dark nights that you know I faced were it was tough. Um, but I I used hockey as an outlet, and and I'm very grateful that it's taken me places that I never ever expected and and you know making the NHL at 20 years old you're in the limelight uh, you know a lot going on a lot of people pulling you in different directions uh, you know thank god I had um a great support system in in my teammates and you know the the organization of uh, the Nashville Predators David Poyle Barry Trotz the whole coaching staff training staff you know everyone cared about Jordan Tutu, the the person, not the hockey player. We're talking with Jordan Tutu. Jordan's going to be in London on September 20th for the 13th annual Recovery Breakfast. It starts at 7 o'clock at the Doubletree by Hilton, and he'll be sharing more of his story. And you talk about your teammates and, and the staff. How much of your life did you try to keep from them, and, and how much did you eventually let them know in order to get the help you needed? Yeah, I think the the first eight years of my professional career, I, 
I lied. I lied to myself. I lied to my teammates. And, you know, eventually it all caught up. And, uh, you know, when, when you're... When you grow up in a household where, you know, you don't show weakness, you never back down, uh, you never surrender, you know, it was tough for me to, to admit that I had a problem. But ultimately, it was, uh, it was a choice of, uh, you know, staying in the NHL or withering away like uh, into, into an unknown world where... You know, hockey was all I knew. Um, so, you know, like I said before, I am uh, truly grateful for the, the gift that was offered to me in, in getting help uh, and, you know, for me ultimately surrendering and, uh, and accepting help from outside sources. Jordan, you remember a specific day when you decided, okay, I, I need somebody else. I need someone to help me. Yeah, it was middle of December, um, uh, t- 2010, where, you know, I, I went on a binge and, uh, you know, when I woke up a few days later, I knew it was my time. I, I got called into Mr. David Poyle's office and on my way to, to the rink, I knew that this, uh, this meeting was, uh, was it. And, uh, you know, I just let my guards down and, uh, and accepted, the help that I needed and, and, and the, the, my recovery began December 27th, 2010. Was that a, an easy day? Was that a hard day? It was the hardest day of my life, um, to really open up and, and let go of the, the anger and the blame. Um, you know, for me, Leaving the game that I knew and everything that I knew and going into rehab was uh, was scary. And, you know, being a guy who, who wasn't scared of anything, um, that for me was uh, was probably the toughest day, uh, walking into the, the rehab facility and, uh, and fearing, like I said, of the unknown. You eventually returned to playing after that. What was playing like? following going to rehab, following reaching out for help. Was it different? Totally. You know, I, I didn't know what to expect, um, you know, but the, the support that I got from the, the city of Nashville, uh, the hockey world, it was just, uh, I was speechless. And, you know, it it took a long time for everything to, to set in and, and settle in and, and really absorb the uh, the impact that I had on you know the city of Nashville, the indigenous communities, uh, you know. So you kind of you kind of black out and forget about everything that's going on and and just live in the moment. And you know I've been uh, living in uh, in every moment since then, taking it one day at a time. Uh, but it was a struggle, you know. The first first few years of, uh, of recovery was, was the hardest. You know, a lot of people think that when they seek help and, and go into treatment that life's going to be great after. Well, it, it's not. It gets harder. But, you know, in order to, to heal yourself, you have to pe- peel back those painful layers and, and work hard and commit and really 
dig deep down to uh, to heal those wounds. Jordan Tutu joining us. Jordan will be a part of the Recovery Breakfast, 13th Annual at Doubletree by Hilton on September 20th. Starts at 7 o'clock in the morning. We're lucky enough to be able to talk with him right now. Jordan, when it comes to leaving the game, one of the words that would come up again and again from you was helping, that you always looked at the indigenous community and, and how important it was to help, how much help you gave each other within the indigenous community. How much of an impact did that have on the day you decided to retire? You know what, I was uh, I was able to walk away from the game on my own terms and uh not a lot of guys get to get to do that. And you know, I knew that 13 years of playing in the NHL was more than I ever expected. And for for a little guy from Rankin Inlet Nunavut becoming the first Inuk was uh you know, the the impact that I um I had on our people was uh, immeasurable and and something that I take a lot of pride in and giving back. And I feel that you know at this point in my life, it's uh, it's the right thing to do. And you know I get to share my story and you know give hope to our our kids. When you look at being able to talk to kids, kids who maybe now are even a little bit older but watched you play, what is it like to to talk with them or even their parents who watched you play? Yeah, it's a, a amazing feeling. You know, the, the support that I have gotten throughout Canada has been a, an honor. Um, you know, for me, I get to share stories and uh, and experiences with uh, with people that would love to live that life. A lot of people don't realize how hard it is to uh to be an NHL player, to be a professional athlete. Uh you know the the people watching you, every, watching your every move. Uh, you know, for me now, you know, I get to really honor and and be the real me. You know, when you're comfortable and content in your own skin, you're able to help people. When uh, when your soul is uh, is filled with love and and the the support, it's uh, it changes a lot. And and my mindset, I, I I walked away from the game pretty healthy, and and you know something that not a lot of guys get to say. Jordan, we opened by talking about you sharing your story, and I want to thank you for sharing your story today and look forward to you being in London on September the 20th. Really appreciate the time. My pleasure. Thank you, and we'll, uh, we'll see you guys soon. Jordan Tutu, former National Hockey Leaguer. He ended up playing over 700 games in the National Hockey League, and he was the guy who was banging his frame around each and every time he was on the ice and at 5'9", 175. That's not a big guy, but he would go up against anyone and everyone, and many of his teammates had no idea what he was dealing with outside of that. Many of his teammates had no idea that he was going home and feeling that loneliness, and he was able to one day say, okay, I got to go in. And he met with David Poyle, then the general manager of the Nashville Predators. And and he was able to reach out and say, I need some help. And it's a powerful message that you will hear 
next Friday, you won't just hear it from Jordan. You'll hear it from people from this community. And the day that they decided, I can't go on like this anymore. I've got to get help. And they reach out for help. And it's a really powerful event. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 